Από πού ερχόσασταν και πού πηγαίνατε. Από Λονδίνο ήμουν για Αθήνα. Τέλος καλό, όλα καλά. Πάρα. Welcome back to Epirus Falls, a podcast series all about my love of northwestern Greece and its people. In today's episode, we are going to the very special village of Sitsa, a village that's as well known for its wine, which it now exports around the world, as it is a unique love story. This love story took place at the bakery of the village, a place I first discovered in the spring when owner Kostas Karamikos and his wife Anna Ellis made me the most delicious lunch made of fresh bread, wild garlic and homegrown tomatoes. Over the past few months, I've dreamt about returning to this bakery. So let's go baking in a brand new episode of Iparus Falls. One, two, three, four. So, brand new episode of Epirus Falls, and today we are in the village of Zitsa, and we are with two really special people from the community here who run a very special place. Hi to Anna and Costas, who run the bakery of the village, and I'll just say now that we may be interrupted now and again because... We're open right now. <laughs> I say we because I'm part of this <laughs> interruption. But uh, we may have people coming through the door throughout this recording. You need an apron because we might stick you behind the counter. <laughs> I am totally happy to pitch in. <laughs> I frequently pitch in at my friends Taverna and Tristina. Um, nice. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this episode and letting us actually record this episode inside your bakery <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourselves to the podcast, to our listeners, and tell us a bit about where we are? Yes, sure. My name is Kostas Karamichos. I'm the baker of the village and run the bakery the last 31 years, since 1992, that my father started. We are in the village of Zitsa, a small village in the northwest part of Greece. And uh, yeah, we try to make bread and not only. <laughs> We make things for the community. We try to give life to the village, and that's the baker of the village. And I'm Anna Ellis from America originally, and uh, I moved here, I always forget, 13 years ago in December. Uh, Kotsis and I met 14 years ago, and our first year of courtship was from afar, but we fell in love while I was in America, and he was here. And then I moved here and started building a life with him, and working in the bakery together and doing other projects related to the bakery and related to bringing the world here and showing them the life here. So you'd come to Epirus on a trip? Yes. You'd met Costas here at the bakery? Yes. We met, uh, I was a traveler, we host travelers still, um, you know, free travel, you know, if they need a bed to stay in and things like that. And I was traveling with my sister and he hosted us for a night. And it was just a nice casual exchange. There was no love at first sight or anything like that. And we were here 24 hours and then we left. And then I came back a week later by myself. My sister had already left and he had said, you didn't really see very much, so if you want to come back. And the second time it was just me and uh, another 24 hours, which was kind of like a 24 hour date. Um, and when I left after that 24 hours, we hugged, 
we didn't know what the future hold. We said, have a nice life. But then for some reason, we stayed in touch almost every single day for the next eight months and fell in love during that time. And then I came back eight months later and we saw that what we had was real. And he asked me, do you think you'd be happy here? And I said, yep. And then four months later, I moved here. And at that point, you had seen other parts of Greece, right? You'd- yeah, yeah. I'd been all over Greece. I'd been over the world, actually. I'd been traveling for many, many years on and off, um, many continents, many different things. And I never expected to settle anywhere. <laughs> um, and uh, it, was, it was our love that brought me here. I mean, it was a beautiful place, for sure. But it wasn't, oh, I want to move to Zitza, per se. It was, I want to move to be with Costas, and getting to be in Zitza is bonus. And then I fell in love with the place as much as him. I mean, he's always had it in his blood. It's always been part of his passion about life is here. Uh, And we never even considered America, neither one of us. Let's talk a bit about Zitza. So Zitza, as you say, is a small village, but it has a very big personality. And people know the name Zitza when you when you speak to them about it. That is largely due to its successful wine production. Yes, that's the wine. Yeah, Zitza is famous for the wine. I think the name is yeah, it's more than four, five, six hundred years than people producing that special wine in the area. In the traditional way. In the traditional way that's make a really unique sparking wine. And for that name of Zitza is famous around, uh, and right now uh, around in the world, because the Zitza wine start to export all over the world the last year, so people start to learn about this. When we walk through the village today, and I, I have a feeling that the bakery is also uh, partly to do with this, all the locals said, welcome, welcome to the village, welcome to Zitza. Can you tell me a bit about the locals here and the philosophy of the village, if there is yes, one? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that's about... Uh, since we host a lot of backpackers, cyclists the last 15 years, the people in the village are really familiar with uh, seeing backpackers, foreigners in the village. And all that year, always there was welcome. All the people that we host surprised because everybody smiled to them and said good morning, even though they don't know each other. And uh, still that community or that positive energy and vibes there are in the village and the people welcome foreigners and they are really smiling and all this so I think yeah that's it's a yeah it's because all that years and people and past so they feel connected a little bit yeah and how long do people stay for generally with you (laughs) there's no general it can be one night we had a traveler who just popped in for the night to get a warm shower or it could be a month um, it could be they park their caravan up the hill and they and they hang out with us for a month or they... It doesn't matter. It, yeah, Until they no, feel ready to move on, yeah, to continue yeah. their trip. Uh, and what does that give you both as a couple? And uh, you, you have two young daughters, I think four and eight years old. Mm-hmm. What does that give to you as a family? That is mm-hmm. like traveling in the world through the people that we host. It's each time that we have a new cyclist or a new person, it's like so interesting about country, their country, about hear stories about their trip. Or Usually me, I ask them where they found good bread or mm-hmm. any good uh, ideas that they have seen on the road. So it's a source of inspiration for me, talking with yeah. them and asking. 
even about the way of thinking or different topics always it's just but that's amazing you yeah. you obviously have a job that uh, is quite restrictive in some ways it's hugely fulfilling but you can't walk away from it for long <laughs> right. so you're bringing the world to you yes yes yeah and for our daughters too there's not a lot of uh, little Greek kids in villages that meet a lot of foreigners. Um, and I grew up, you know, in a poly culture, and I really appreciate that about America. But um, so I love that they get to meet all different people who speak different languages, who look different. Um, you know, we have, we have gay couples, we have single people, we have, you know, everything, which is really wonderful for them to, to see and normalize. Um, and, and getting back to, like, the baking... You know, often they'll cook together and Costas, and they'll bake together and bring recipes to Costas and they'll share and learn. And he's always learning, even though he's been doing this for most of his life. And he's a brilliant baker and cook, but he always is learning. He's humble like that and curious. And so, yeah, the panettone is a good example of, of learning about many that. Many things, many yeah. products from the bakery, they pop up from ideas with, uh, from travelers that we host. And just. Uh... So, which nations do you think do the best bread? <laughs> It depends. It's a, it de- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can be. I don't know. I'm always open to new flavors and new things. And so there are the European way of making bread. But as you go more east, you start to f- have the different. It's more flat bread. And you can see in there different cultures and different breads and different, more simple, not so complicated because it depends what they have each country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can't say yeah. best, but it's always interesting to mm-hmm. taste new flavors and new combinations with something. Yeah. I was really excited to find sourdough hmm. when I came here yeah, in yeah. April. There wasn't so common uh, in the Greece. Now started to be more and more, I can say, to find real sourdough bread. Because of him. Because of me. It mm. was general. The people start to be more aware and start the... Also, the customers are trained and doing a good bread slowly, slowly. So they're asking for that. So that is a cycle of bring more good bread around. So you can see more new bakeries, micro bakeries mostly than pop up with a really good quality all over Greece. So it's something. But obviously it's amazing that all these new ideas are being introduced, but it's also important, I guess, like anything, that we preserve traditional Greek recipes, right? Greek bread. Uh, I remember myself growing up and going in the local bakery by that time we didn't have a bakery and uh, bakery bread was really important for the each family there was the main food there was quite cheap there was everybody started with two three loaves of bread to feed the family and i can say most of the mixing by that it was by hand and so all of that give different touch to the bread and and right now that we we lost it it's not easy to continue in that way it was really hard being a baker by that time but there are some of the very special holiday there are, breads that we yeah, still have. Yeah, definitely that are very still continue to make some really special breads in Greece from the Lagana bread that is for one day per year. Then we made this, that is a flat bread with a lot of sesame on the top. Each holidays they have their own bread. Every Sunday we make uh, prosphora. It's some bread with a stamp on the top that is offered to the church from the people and. That, there are the Easter for Tsureka. Tsureka is something sweet bread, like a brioche. black brioche, you can say. In Christmas, there are the Christopsomo. It's like Christmas bread. Uh, and within Greece, do you see differences region to region in terms of the style of bread? Yes, of course. Uh, it depends the special geography from each place. They have created different type of foods. 
to fit in that geography or in that what they grow in there. Because our grandparents, they grow all their food, so they have to make food what there was around. They have some corn, they have some wheat. So there are some recipes that still exist from this way. There are a pie that is making with a corn flour that is similar because our grandparents, they have a lot of corn flour. There was corn easier to growing and all this. They didn't have access to wheat by that time because a lot of mountains, it was an easy place to growing wheat. So right now, sometimes when I make darker bread, the older people, they don't want to see it because they, all their childhood was feeding them by dark bread. And right now they want looking for the white soft bread that is something that missed in their lives. I think we have a customer coming in. Yes. yes. Hold on. Elate, elate. <laughs> so he's being humble, but he really is um, one of the famous sourdough makers in Greece. And in fact, he has um, dried and sent his sourdough starter to people all over Greece that ask for it. Um, the one he has, I think, is, is a little over 10 years old. Although the other day somebody was telling us that they had started sourdough with a sourdough from their grandmother that was 100 years old and then we felt bad but <laughs> um but yeah no he he's he worked on it for many years and mastered it and um in fact he's still like he said he's always trying to make it better is there anything in terms of a community with bakers that you're aware of that yes oh how yeah how does that yeah. all work um yeah well there's an association of bakers um and each region has their own uh group i guess and in fact Uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was now, but he went to, one of his trips to France was with the group and they paid for the trip and he met one of his now best friends there. They ended up being roommates in Paris. Mm. Um, so yeah, there is a community of bakers and they share tips and techniques and things like that. They also will lobby together for different issues. Um, so there's a law that in order to call something bread, it can only be the four main ingredients of bread, salt, water, yeast, and flour. If it has other things like seeds or flavors, it can't be called a bread. It can be something else. Um, and they wanted to change that. Did they, did they change that? Do you no, know? No. So they ended up not. Yeah. And then also if there's price issues um, that they have to agree on. We're talking about the, the baking um, coalition association. association. And Anna, you mm. obviously growing up in America, you actually had a career yeah, and studied something entirely different to the <laughs> life you lead today, right? Yep. yep. And that was environmental law? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, well, I came around to it. I actually didn't uh, start my career in environmental law until quite late for most people. I mean, I did an undergraduate degree as normal, and then I kind of bounced around jobs, travel, and all that for almost 10 years. And then I went back to school, to law school, when I was 30, um, to Vermont law, which is always either the first or second best environmental law school in, in the country, depending on the, that year's rankings. Um, Yeah, and it was, it was a very interesting course of study, and I also got a master's in environmental law and policy at the same time. Um, and, uh, yeah, did some, some very interesting environmental work for a couple months before, well, almost a year before moving here. What was it like moving on from that profession? It wasn't hard for me because I realized the type of environmental law that I was um, doing was more administrative, which meant more office work. And I didn't really know that there was a world outside the office, but I just knew I wasn't very happy there. And then coming here literally t 
two days or a day after I moved here, I started working in the bakery as his assistant. And I loved that, uh, this type of work, you know, using your hands, directly interacting with people and things like that. Um, so I didn't miss the law per se. I missed sometimes being in the environmental field and I missed more of the writing intellectual work of it sometimes. Um, but I have brought that into my life here in different ways at various times. Can you tell us a bit about how you've managed to apply some of those things? Yeah, um, well, first, um, I, uh, my sister, who's also a lawyer, she had a lot of contacts in the, in the non-English-speaking world who would be writing journal articles for law review, you know, different art- journals, and they needed editing work from an English speaker, so I was doing a lot of that, so I could edit law journals and articles and things like that. And then um, back in 2007, in November 2007, was when we learned about the exploration, the oil exploration 17. here. 17, sorry, oh my gosh, 2017. <laughs> um, we learned accidentally that uh, some companies were coming in to do oil exploration and extraction in our area. And we and a bunch of people formed some coalitions to fight against that. And part of my role was... Um, was uh, writing things for press and also um, writing grant proposals to get grant money to help us fight it and things like that. Um, so I was involved in that way. They what were they that. originally suggesting for this area? It wasn't very clear to us. Never there was a clear information to the population. Yeah. And that was one of the things that we was try to learn more and be more educated about what's going on. Because yeah. There was didn't tell anything. There wasn't even uh, meetings about inform the people what can happen or what's the possible things. So it was a little bit unknown and to try to find their, our own search of uh, similar things that happen in other parts of the world or different. Um, the general plan by that time there was to do some tests to see where exactly there the was the, the size and all this, what they're looking for, because it wasn't clear what they're looking for, if it was like oil or gas or whatever. So I remember when he told me, because I was actually in America with our oldest daughter for her second birthday, and he came a week or two after. And when he came, he told me. I didn't know until then. And I remember feeling like someone carved my heart out. And I just, and, and I didn't even grow up here. You know, at that time, I'd only been here five, six years. I don't even know. But this place is so special. I mean, I've... I've traveled Africa, Asia, South America, North America, and I can't put my finger on exactly what it is about here, but it's, yeah, it's, it's ethereal. And, and hearing that it might be destroyed for a terrible reason, because the world is, should be moving away from hydrocarbons anyway. <laughs> so it, it just seems crazy that they would be considering doing that in general, but also here. Um, and... Yeah, it just, it would be a shame to lose all that. I just wanted to ask, obviously you, you, you would have the option to, to move to America, uh, bring your kids up in America. Never. You've made never a conscious decision put, not yes, to go in that direction. Yeah, never put in the yeah. table so far, never. We didn't need to put in the table so far, I can say. We're pretty aware of what we have and uh, appreciate what we have here. Even can be less than options for kids, for us, for everybody. 
being in the village to have less options than being in the city. But there are, from the other hand, the freedom that you can't have that. You have time to discover yourself. You have time to spend in, uh, to spend in nature or to walk or to do stuff like that than you can't have in the city. Then always you are usually you're chasing something then you never grab it in the end. And within that, a conscious decision to bring your kids up more with a relationship with nature and the countryside than deciding like almost half the population of Greece to, to move to Athens. Um, how important is it that you foster that relationship and cultivate that relationship they, they have with nature? You want to answer? Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's everything. I mean, I, as I think I've told you before, I, I was anti-kid, actually, most of my life. I, I never wanted or planned to have kids. And I didn't realize until after moving here that for me, it wasn't that I didn't want kids. It was I didn't want kids in America. Um, and, you know, it is a give and take, as we said. I mean, there's benefits to both city life and village life. But for us, we value the village life, what it has. Um, and, you know, sometimes I wish, oh, on, on Christmas, I wish I could take them to the Nutcracker Ballet because I remember going there as a kid and I'm loving it. You know, we don't have that easily available. I mean, I could take them down to Athens and do all that, but, you know, maybe once when they're older. But um, so for sure there's there are limits, but... You know, the fact that at four and a half and eight, we, they can just walk out the door and say, all right, Mama, we're going out exploring or whatever. And I'm like, okay, just, you know, be back before dark. Um, safety. Safety. Community. And knowing, yeah, knowing that if, if anything did happen, if one of them fell and got hurt, it would only take about a second for someone in the village to see it, call us, tell us, you know, or someone else to go help them. One day our daughter was walking home from school and a downpour just opened up. And I didn't, by the time I got in the car, she was already gone from the school. And I was like, where is she? And then someone drives up with her in their car and drops her off in the bakery. Um, so, you know, and, and we have the farm, the sheep farm. And so the, the things they're learning there, to me, are just as important as extra language class or piano or swimming or, you know, things like that. Because they're building they're constantly just creating and building and and using their analytical skills and they feel close to nature they don't get scared out by bugs and things like that um and they get their hands they dirty. get they get their hands very dirty and uh and they grow up with the community i mean everyone in the village knows them everyone in the village is happy to see them whenever they see them walking down the street um the way of life in a village can be so rewarding and nowadays it it's kind of perfect with, with internet and how connected the world is. You can do anything in a village. You don't need to be in a city. <laughs> 